Welcome back to another episode of Don't Be So Dramatic. My name is Rachel and this is the podcast where I talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there. For this week's episode, I have with me Roger Mason. Roger is a musician and a composer. He has been inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame for his work as a musician and he has won multiple awards and been nominated for multiple awards at the Actors, the AFIs, the APRA Awards. Roger is also um, becoming an author soon, which is so interesting. He decided to write a book this year when his music work quietened down a little bit. He is also um, going to be touring at the start of next year, which he mentions at the end of the episode. I always find it interesting to talk to musicians and people who are composers because I know so little about music and all that sort of thing. And obviously Roger has been around for a bit and he knows what he's talking about. So it was interesting to kind of see the progression of his career over the years and how the industry has changed and how the industry has changed because of technology. So yes, this will be one of the last episodes for this year because we're coming up to the end of the year. Yay, I'm so excited for a break. I just wanted to say a big, big, big thank you to every person who has been listening to the podcast this year. Honestly, it has been such an amazing year. And I know this sounds really cheesy, but I am really, really just very grateful for all of you and for all the support that I constantly receive. It's just, yeah, it just honestly um, is really, really amazing. Um, So thank you very much. If you do feel so inclined, you can give my podcast a rating on Apple Podcasts. I always like seeing those. So thank you guys for listening. And without further ado, let's jump in. Roger, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing? It's quite warm in Sydney. You're based on the central coast. That's right. That's right. Um, It's very warm up here. Um, That's not so much the problem. The cicadas are out. Oh. (laughs) You might hear the chiming in the background. I'm in the quietest part of the house, but for some reason it, it hasn't made too much difference, but we'll... Struggle through, that I guess. That is totally fine. It's like Australian summer is coming once you hear the cicadas. It's a very Aussie interview, this one. <laughs> yes. So you are a musician and a composer. Um, and me, m- music and composing is one of the things in the industry that I really know so little about, but have so much respect for people that do it because when I see <laughs> their work, I'm just like in awe of like, I could never, I could never do that. <laughs> so I wonder um, which kind of came first for you, I guess. Was it the music, the interest in music and um, becoming a musician and then you realized that you could also do composing work or was it kind of at the same time mm, that it is interesting I, i've been pondering on this um recently um someone asked me a similar question i started playing piano at about three and a half and because i was basically aping my brother and sister because they were having piano lessons um but as a kid there was a big age difference between myself and my siblings 
And so quite often, and my, my mother was working. And so but I was a kind of a quiet kid. So she felt that she could leave me alone <laughs> uh, quite comfortably. And um, so I used to watch a lot of television, which sounds really unhealthy, but I, I found myself being absorbed into not only the programs, but the, um, the score, or more, more so the themes. If there were thematic elements in the score, I was really drawn to them. And then I would try and find the notes on the piano. And um, I used to copy things like um, uh, songs on the radio, or if I got up early in the morning, those were the days before transmission, 24 hour transmission. And so if I woke up before everyone else, like most kids do, you go straight to the TV and there's a test pattern. And there was a test pattern, static <laughs> image of a test pattern with a color chart and all your, and then they play music of the day, like pop songs of the day, which were real mainstream, Harry Como and uh, the Banana Boat song and um, the Ray Con <laughs> of singers and all of this old stuff of the early 60s. But I would take all of those things in and try to replicate them on the piano. Wow. And then, um, so I was always drawn to that side of it. And then I, I, you know, I used to listen to, of course, as I got older, um, pop songs on the radio. And my sister was a big Beatles fanatic. So all of her stuff influenced me. At the same time, I had a mother who was trained at the con as an opera singer. She didn't go professional because women didn't in those days. You, your duty was to be a housewife, you know. And so she foregoed her career as, a, as, a, as an opera singer um, to be a, a, wife, a housewife. That's wild. Why would they train them then in opera if they were kind of, if it was like societally not, I guess, acceptable to have a career like that then, do you think? Yeah. Well, I guess it was women were meant to be, to have all of those qualities of refinement and deportment and education. Um, I, I read something, um, a book a few months back where they were talking about the piano was actually one of the most liberating things for women when it became mainstream and a lot of piano manufacturers came onto the scene, uh, making it affordable. Because what that meant was it was a tool to enable women to, um, who were often not allowed to have or wouldn't be employed, even if they were trained for anything. What happened was it allowed a lot of women to get piano training, musical training, they could then go out and either perform, which was acceptable in the, the Victorian era, um, or they could teach. Mm. So it, it was very powerful as a, um, I guess, a precursor to uh, the women's vote mm -hmm. and, um, and other freedoms that gradually came into play. But it was um, a very powerful tool in those days. And, yeah, so um, how did we get onto that? Uh, I think uh, I lost my train. You. I'm very sorry. <laughs> that was no, no, that's okay. I just <laughs> I went somewhere else.
Um, you're um, talking about how your mum um, for... Oh, she was um, an opera singer. She was an opera yeah, singer, but she didn't pursue the career. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so my dad um, was a, um, a jazz fanatic. He was heavily into Dixieland and swing, mostly from about the 1920s through to about... He had a cut-off period around about the mid 1950s it started to get a bit um clever for him <laughs> and in fact um that period of jazz and blues and swing or well, jazz and swing was um very close to the origins of rock and roll mm. and so i was influenced a lot i used to copy a lot of the jack t garden and and boogie and um ragtime Things. And so I got a lot of my chops through listening to my dad's records. And I didn't realize at the time that I, I was in training for to play in a rock band. You know? <laughs> but that was my kind of education, yeah. my passive education, um, because I didn't, I've never really had a formal education in music. Um, I'm self-taught with uh, playing um, and so I play a variety of instruments that I've just picked up and over the years and um, I play on all my scores and um, my orchestration and um, arranging all of those things were self-taught um, because I had a I guess a uh, well, your initial question was which one came first an interest in songs or scoring it they they I guess I followed a band path, but I didn't realize that there was a parallel path at, um, below the surface. And it was largely as a result of watching a lot of television mm. in isolation because I was a bit of a loner as a kid. Mm. And so I spent a lot of time by myself thinking about things and um, just playing and experimenting and trying different things and even experimenting with sound by um, um, putting mum's clothes pegs on the strings of the piano <laughs> and all sorts of things you know, that were lying around in order to give it a different tone. And so I ex started experimenting with things like that. And then when um, I was about 16, you get in, I got into my first band, which played a lot of heavy metal stuff and rock songs of the day like Bad Company and Deep Purple and you know, those heavy rock bands of the early 70s. Well, except this was about 1977. And right when the punk movement was happening in Britain. And uh, but we had little idea or no idea of the significance of it. And how, um, how much it would develop and turn and throw music on its head. Mm. No one realised it at the time. They thought it was just a lot of um, thugs um, <laughs> running around with spiky hair. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it was this massive, great political movement um, that had not a lot of relevance here. So we didn't really understand it. The, the reasons behind punk music. We didn't understand why this thing was taking off in Britain. But anyway, um, I came up through that period um, I met a guy named James Freud 
whose manager was looking for a band. We were a band who had a studio because we'd fitted out a studio in a little factory in Melbourne. Oh and my God. Uh, how, we're, how did that happen? How, were you, hang on, how, were you 16 at this point when that happened or how old were you? Uh, I had just turned 18. Um, oh, okay. what, hap- what happened was when I got kicked out of school, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> um, my father said, uh, you didn't finish school, you're either going to... Um, you're either going to get a job or um, you're going to, or I'll kick you out of the house mm-hmm. or you'll repeat a year. There's no way I want to repeat a year. I hated school, mm. hated every bit of it. So um, my father organized an interview for me as a carpenter. <laughs> he said, you have to have a trade. You know, that's the old, the old um, adage. Yeah. So, I became an apprentice carpenter for um, three years until I finally thought, I'm not going to do this. I hate this. I like building stuff, actually. I like being handy with my hands. I was always building little things in the backyard and cuppy houses and things. Hmm. But I was working on these big um, um, government sites and like for government contracts for sewage pumping stations and high schools and things like that. And I didn't particularly like the lifestyle. I didn't like the idea that I could cut my fingers off at any point because they used to make fun of me because I had long hair and I was, I was always fixated. I always, in my corner of the lunchroom, there was a pile of music magazines, literally about a meter high that I'd accumulated over the period. And so I was always being taunted for my, you know, fixation with music. And they knew that I wasn't right for the job and I knew I wasn't right for the job. So one day I quit. I just stopped going actually. But (laughs) the guys in the band I was with said, we will pay you um, $50 a week if you build a studio for us with the skills you've accumulated. And that's what I did. Wow. It's still in operation today down in Melbourne. Oh my God. And you built it. Yeah, yeah. And so it took about 18 months. Uh, By the time it was finished, we um, were a band that had no singer. We did have a singer, but we got rid of him. Um, And um, so anyway, this meeting came up. The bass player was at a nightclub where he met this manager. And then we met James Freud. And uh, he decided, yeah, let's start a band. And then one by one, the, the guys kind of fell by the wayside for a variety of reasons, but I stayed and um, with James. And then we went on to, um, uh, that was James Floyd in Berlin. And then that's kind of where my professional career took off from playing with bands that lasted for about 12 years. That's wild. So were you working as well as playing in those bands? Because, you know, it's very... Um, like a lot of young creatives have jobs to support their creative endeavors initially um, and sometimes for the like the whole span of their creative careers were you working doing something else in order to support um, being in a band for a little while or was it just playing in the band when we recorded our album I was still working as a carpenter and so we recorded at night and I would go off like all night 
and then I would drive from the studio to the to the building site. And I was working on a building site up having no sleep. Oh my god. And this went on for this went on for like a month or, or more. Yeah. It was insane. Wow. And so um I guess when you're young you can do that. But um, it would kill me now. Uh, but, um yeah, so then when the single was released, we were assigned to Mushroom. Um and they released Modern Girl, which then became a hit. And then we had to go professional. Gigs started to come in. We started to book gigs and it, it took off. So then I could give up my job. You could support yourself by playing live. We were playing three, four, five times a week. After a couple of months, we were playing um, six days a week, seven shows. And oh my so, God. And yeah, and we were making a pretty good living. Yeah. Um, we, weren't, we weren't rich, but it was enough to sustain ourselves. When we first started, before the single, we were paying to play. We'd have to um, uh, pay a certain amount towards the PA and things like that. And, um, and we had no money. And so then all of a sudden, we were getting paid for it. We couldn't believe it. But as soon as we got paid for it, I remember we got a phone call. Um, from the union who called me at home. He said, we've been trying to contact your manager, but we can't get through. So um, I said, who's this? And he said, musicians union. And I said, okay. And um, I had a great respect for unions as a result of being a apprentice carpenter because they were the ones who saved me from a life trapped um, inside a workshop, which I did for a year gluing door panels together. So I was an apprentice carpenter who was supposed to be learning the trade, um, but they were using me as slave labor, basically. And so because uh, they were paying, as a first-year apprentice, they pay you so little. It was literally $17 a week. Even oh, by that God. standard in 1979, uh, 78, it was very poor. Yeah. Um, however, um, the union guy came in one day and said, Are you a, every time I walk in here, you're, you're doing this job. Do you enjoy it? And I said, no way. <laughs> he said, would you prefer to be on a building site? And I said, compared to this, absolutely. So he went upstairs. Ten minutes later, he came downstairs and gave me a wink. <laughs> and um, the foreman came down, all red in the face, and he said, grab your things. You're going out onto the building site. You be there on Monday. <laughs> so, so it was great because as a, an apprentice, you're not allowed to join the union. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And so this guy went out of his way to do that for me because just because it was, he thought it was wrong. And so uh, I guess that was also in the days when unions had power and bosses listened. Mm. Um, so when the, when the guy from the musicians union called me, I thought, this is great. And he said, yeah, just letting you know that, uh, now that you're a uh, professional, um, you, uh, haven't paid your dues and, um, you've got a, a television appearance coming up and we're going to block you. And not only that, you're playing uh, tonight. And he said, 
if you try and go on stage, we'll have people on the side of the stage to stop you. And if you still decide to go on stage without paying your dues, we're going to pull all the bar staff. What's and the, what were the dues to be paid? The dues were just this um, something, it was somewhere in the vicinity of $150 for the band, which oh, okay. was still very, to be, because you have to, you were compelled, you could not perform live unless you were in the union. Right, okay. So it was the complete opposite of my experience with unions. And mm. I really resented that because, and through my experience, the musicians union never did anything for live musicians except for orchestral musicians. Mm-hmm. I've had nothing to do with them um, since, so I have no idea what they actually do. Or, but um, in those days, they used to, they started a campaign and, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not down on unions. I was just down on the musicians union at this particular point. Yes, Because that's right. they had also started a campaign where they said um, they wanted to ban the synthesizer because... <laughs> I know, it's hysterical because they said it was stealing um, work away from orchestral musicians because someone had heard... Harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or reduce their costs. Yeah, um, but because um, try and find, try and get an orchestra booked into a, um, <laughs> get the budget for an orchestra these days do production. It's like it's impossible. Oh my god! Yeah. But uh, they had a campaign where they were, had bumper stickers, and I forget what it actually said, but it was in order to. Um, all I had in those days was a little ARP Odyssey, which is a one-note thing. Yeah. And uh, they were trying to ban them, ban synthesizers, which is hysterical because, you know, it almost sounds like a violin. Yeah. We can't have that. <laughs> How dare they, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and things were, things were hard enough as it was without, you know, the union jumping in and saying, you're not allowed to play that instrument. Mm. Play the piano. That's, your in- that's what you should be doing. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. I had no idea that that happened. I know. It's bizarre when I think about it. Yeah. yeah. And obviously yeah. they did not succeed in that campaign, I'm guessing. They did not. No. no. Maybe they should have. <laughs> Maybe they should have tried harder because synthesizers, well, not synthesizers so much, but samplers have definitely um, killed the need for an orchestra. I mean, nothing is totally going to replace an orchestra, but it comes damn close. Yeah, I mean, you can say that about so many things within the whole creative industry. It's just the way that things go. Things, you know, improve and um, like, you know, the using your mobile phone as a camera has kind of replaced the need to be hiring out like expensive camera equipment if you're just filming like a little short film or something like that like you know it's you can you can hate the progression of things in the industry but it's always going to progress and it's just how you then I guess use um, the new technology and things coming through to your advantage is you know otherwise you're just going to sit around being like that's not fair 
And everyone's like, okay, cool, but I'm going to still do it. <laughs> it's, it's true. And I don't think it's been anywhere. It's, I don't think it's been evident um, in anything more so than the arts. Mm. Um, because technology has been a blessing and a curse. I agree, yeah. It's, it's given people a lot of power at their fingertips to do things that were out of their reach. But at the same time, it's pulled people away from um, the screen, uh, mm. from commercial television, which is where a lot of production was being made. And um, no, with no one advertising now, there's no revenue um, for networks to, to fund um, local productions. Mm. And then at the same time, you've got people who are professional photographers who all of a sudden, there are no professional photographers um, to my knowledge, that are still working in, um, in um, there, there are perhaps a handful, a couple, but um, I was talking to a, a famous rock photographer of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, and he still does some work, um, but he was saying how um, now a magazine approached him to do some photos for their magazine, he thought, wow, that's great, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And he said, how much is it? And he said, oh, we're not paying you. Oh, and this is a guy oh my with God. a massive resume. And they said, no, no, it's just good exposure for you. <laughs> and oh, so he told no. them, yeah, he told them to fuck off, of course, yeah, as, you, as you would. And, um, but increasingly, and, and these are the problems because they don't need a photographer. They can get someone to just send in photos with their iPhone or there are so many stock libraries now with not only photos, but of music. And um, so and increasingly that's becoming a bit of an issue for people like me. People like me don't matter so much because I'm, you know, nearing the end of my career, perhaps. I'd, I'd like to think I've got another 15 years. Um, but um, for young composers coming up, they not only have to compete with a, um, a much larger group of composers all vying for a much smaller amount of jobs that are available. Uh, the resources in those jobs are smaller the returns on royalties are much smaller than they used to be. The fees have not changed since the 90s, since the early 90s. Mm. It's the same, great scale. And so um, on top of that, it's, it's kind of cheaper in a sense to create the scores, but the technology has allowed producers to demand more from you. Mm. So to demand, well, go back and do it again and do another mix and give us a variety of mixes. And producers are increasingly asking for more and more things because they know um, they can and they know you can deliver. Mm. Because, you know, you can just do another mix on your computer. Um, but it all takes time. Yeah, it takes time right. to to prove things and listen back and to do them properly. But there is just this um, sense with a lot of producers that, well, that's your problem, you know? And so mm. they don't hesitate in going, getting you to go back and do it again and again and again. But still, look, 
um, I do feel for um, younger composers coming up because they've got so much. Um, you've got all this, and then as you were saying before, even playing live musician, if you want to be a live musician, you've got to have a day job. You've got to have an, altern an alternative um, source of income. Mm. Um, and it's the same in film now. Um, there's just... Um, you need to have other things going. Mm. Um, I guess you guys are a bit more comfortable with that because you've grown up with it in a sense um, where I was very fortunate to have made a full-time career up to this point of being full-time professional as either a, um, a live musician, recording musician or a film composer. Mm. So, yeah, I... I'm hoping that one day things turn around um, and that technology will, we, will go through the damage part of everything and then it will start to see other benefits. At the moment, the only benefit is that everyone can produce, everyone can put content out, which is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. However, unless there's revenue coming back and you're um, rewarded for your efforts, it's turning the arts into a, um, a hobby. Yeah. So professional yeah. Um, artists will, will only be at the very, very top of the pile. Mm. Um, I, I was reading in The Guardian the other day that there were a professional writer these days. Um, most of them, 70% of them, I think it said, earn $4,000 a year. That's insane. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't no. make sense. Um, the, then the next slab is about 10% who, or 15% who get, um, I, I should check these figures, but um, um, the next slab earn about 15000 a year. And then it's only a very small slice at the top mm. who earn more than that. If you, and a few weeks later I saw, um, or earlier, I'd seen an article on Spotify where they were saying how um, in order to sustain a wage of $15 an hour, uh, which is pretty much minimum wage, mm. you need to stream 750,000 songs a month. Oh my God. You've just got to have your song on repeat on your laptop day in and day out. Yeah, that's well, yeah, you need to buy 750 laptops. That's right. No problem. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so things like that are unfortunately um, driving um, the arts down and technology and Aside from all the benefits of it, it has kind of cheapened the arts. Mm. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's reduced its value in a lot of people's eyes. People think nothing of just downloading. Mm. Uh, I guess you could argue that streaming has forced people to at least pay a token amount. Um, whereas before people were just copying, downloading and copying. Mm. Now they're... Um, you know, spending a few bucks a month in order to download thousands or to stream thousands of songs, tens of thousands of songs. 
every month in Spotify, but the artist at the end of that earns virtually nothing from it. Mm, yeah. And so it's still um, incredibly weighed uh, into corporation's favour and against the musician. Mm. And until that's resolved, um, it's going to be, it's very difficult to see how anyone can be a professional in the arts going forward for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with everything that you're saying and, um, you know, it can be disheartening, um, to think about this sort of stuff that is our reality, But I mean, like a positive that I've seen in the filmmaking sector of the industry is that, you know, I think um, for actors, at least, we are competing now with like social media stars and like reality stars who are booking roles in films and on TV shows because they already have a following. But what I have, and that that sucks because, you know, when you go and you train as an actor or, you know, um, you're, you're wanting to pursue a full-time career as an actor, it sucks that someone just does stuff on Instagram and it's like, oh, they're booking the roles that I could have. But what I've seen in the industry is that those situations are tending not to work out very well. Those people, yes, they are booking jobs, but because they're not a trained actor and because they're not trained in the industry. They can't um, sustain it. They can't sustain it. They're not, I'm like, I'm sorry to say, but they don't have the talent in order to sustain a full-time career and a um, career of longevity in the industry. And so like, yes, for a moment they do book those roles, but it never lasts because, you know, they're just, they're just not meant to be. And I've seen that with um, filmmakers as well. Like, Um, Some of my friends are DOPs and um, they have had clients that have come to them and said, what's your fee to film a music video or to film a commercial? And they go, this is my fee. And they go, okay, that's too much. I'm going to, I've just had someone offered to do it for $500. And then they go with that person who's like a student with like some camera that he's just bought that does it for $500 and the quality of the project ends up being terrible and then they go back to my friend and they go we wish we had booked you and paid more money because it would have turned out amazing and we wouldn't be in this situation anymore so I think like we are having those moments of realization like yes you know you can get something for cheaper and um, you can get people who have a following but I haven't yet seen a situation with that in which it works out better than if they were to pay more and get a better kind of quality outcome, I guess. So if anyone was feeling disheartened there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. We're, re- we're really killing the vibe, aren't we? Um, look, it's largely a result of the indifference by the government. Oh, they yes. really <laughs> couldn't give a rat's about no. um, the arts. In fact, quite... Um, more so, they're, they're, they're kind of, um, um, well, aggressively against the arts. And indeed, like universities are copying it too. So it's not just the arts. Um, it's this whole mantra of the government who are just, it's all about trade. They, they think people with jobs are um, uh, people in boots and utes. 
you know. And, <laughs> yeah, and and um, basically we're just a bunch of spoiled children, as a, mm. an editor friend of mine uh, pointed out. He said, they just think we're, we're just this bunch of dilettantes who just want to play act and dress up all day. And he's not wrong. <laughs> but... but they, the whole idea of the arts being important to the identity of a country and a society is completely lost on these politicians mm. who don't value um, the, the lasting effects of art and mm. how it shapes a society mm. and yes. how it gives society and the people within it something to hang on to. If all of you doing, if all, if all you're doing is responding to the base elements by giving them sport. And I'm not trying to deride anyone who's into sport, but when that becomes totally dominant in your idea of how to placate the people and entertain them, you're not feeding them with anything, with any nutrition. Yeah, that's right. Um, as another friend pointed out, um, you go into a bookstore these days and there's, you're lucky if you can find a shelf uh, well, a, a section of the shelf with poetry in it. Mm. If you do, you probably only find half a dozen books in it. Yeah. And every other country in the West, everywhere actually, not just the West, uh, any developed country um, regards their arts as the foundation to their society. Mm. And the importance of it is profound in everything they do. Russians, my God, have you ever met a Russian that doesn't quote poetry? I mean, they, they, they love it. They're obsessed, they're obsessed by it because it's, it comes to the core of who they are mm. as a nation and as an individual. Mm. Um, we don't really have that. And that's partly why the arts are just relegated to the bottom drawer as unimportant and not mm. worthy of... I mean, the, the arts, even when presented with the fact that the arts generate $114 billion a year, the government mm -hmm. is indifferent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in the arts, there are four times as many people uh, in the arts industry as there are in mining. Mm. So when you don't support them, you're basically telling people that... Um, you, not only that you're not important, but you're relegating them to a, a life on the dole, which is taxpayer funded. So it's going to cost the government rather than helping people to get their businesses up and running, particularly through this period, uh, which is going to fill the coffers of the government. But it's an ideological um, position they've taken against uh, anyone in education, the mm. arts. Mm. Unless, of course, you're in one of the big companies who are getting the funding, uh, like, um, you know, the orchestra companies, opera companies. Yeah, yeah. Companies. If, well, if you're in an institution, you're, you're, you can get JobKeeper. Yeah. If anyone else, you're on your own. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but I can't remember when. Um, I just... You know, with the situation that we are in with the government and, you know, like, 
I'm I'm not saying that anyone needs to vote one way or the other with the government. Everyone is entitled to vote for whoever they want, um, honestly, and I'm not going to tell you otherwise. But um, I really do think that we are going to eventually, and when this happens, I don't know, but I think we really truly are going to enter into a situation where society in Australia is going to be... Um, like crying out for more support in the arts because as you say a society it, the arts are all about expression and ex- expressing ourselves and people being able to see themselves within the artistic work that they're viewing which is a really important part of life and so if they're not getting that I just don't I just think eventually we're going to end up in a situation where there is going to be a turning point in which they go oh shit what have we done this is quite bad because as you say watching a sporting match just doesn't cut it it's not the same it's not you know not everyone is interested in sport and you can say well not everyone's interested in poetry it's like great we have so many other things <laughs> that's you right can, yeah you know it was so broad so I just and that's the argument where they they often say well we're not going to support it because no one watches Australian film and that's because partly that's true mm-hmm. but it's partly uh, because um, there, there was a brief period during the 70s and the 80s where the governments of the day responded and they funded film they wanted to bring film people like Philip Adams um, were, was responsible to a large degree of promoting the idea of film to the governments of the, the day. And I, in fact, I think he may have been the, um, the head of the Australian, um, an Australian funding body. Mm. That might be incorrect, but he had a significant part in the promotion of Australian film to the government in order to say, invest in this because it's worth it. And it spearheaded what we had until recently. Mm. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's just really important. And to you can give people a variety of things. You don't have to just give them one thing and then to say that, um, oh, people, punters love sport and it's part of our national, national identity. Why can't we broaden the national identity? That's right. And the national identity is only really for one part of the demographic where the, you know, people can actually have lots of things in their life that are important mm. and it influences them and it broadens their and colours their life and expands their outlook. Um, yeah, I just can't. It's... Particularly this government, I think, is definitely, um, once they're gone, um, it, things might slowly start to shift. But I can't see anything happening until that happens. Mm. Revolution! <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is going to change the world. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And as, like, uh, as someone who like my parents aren't in the industry and so I just find it important and it's not like having an argument or anything like that but definitely like when COVID was happening they said to me they're like oh well I assume that the government's going to bring out some sort of package to support the arts and I went nope <laughs> they went, what do you mean and I said there's nothing 
And they said, oh, well, surely. And so a couple of months went by and I went, did you notice that there's still nothing for the arts? And that really started to open their eyes. It's not having those argumentative conversations with like, well, this is who you're supporting. It's just because people who aren't in the arts don't know about this stuff, you know, and why should they? It's not directly affecting them yet, but it will. So, you know, it's just about kind of educating the ways in which, um, yeah, the this government is affecting our industry and ourselves. Um, and yeah, well, they, they were they were forced, they were kicking and screaming. Um, the um, the arts minister announced this great fanfare. Finally, mm-hmm. in May, I think that there would be a fifty million dollar um, fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of two weeks ago. Um, Nothing had been released. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's finally, I believe money has started to flow now, finally. But it was only, they were holding off and holding off, just seeing if we could not pay anything at all. Yeah, they hadn't paid a cent. And I think they got called out in Parliament. I can't remember what politician it was. It was a female politician said, can you please outline for me, um, where this $15 million has been delegated to. And they were literally umming and ahhing. And she went, can you not answer the question because none of it's been spent? And that was the answer. None of it had been spent, which is just insane, you know? So And so well, they've announced that most of it is going to the major institutions with a, a small amount going to the smaller companies. Mm. Um, but many companies are going under as a result of this um, theatre companies and things like that. Mm. Um, um, Indigenous companies in particular, things like that, that really, really operate on a shoestring and without that support can't find it any other way. Yeah. Uh, That has completely disappeared. And at the same time, the minister himself is holding $17 million of it in his own personal um, clutches in order to distribute as he sees fit. Oh, good. It'll be It'll really interesting to, to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah. Or Foxtel. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah like R- Rupert really needs to buy another yacht. I I thought so too. I thought so. <laughs> yeah, this one's looking a little tired. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, in terms of, <laughs> let's circle back to composing. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, that. that thing. Um, so I know that you have done um, some composing for some fantastic um, films and TV shows in the past. So does that, so I guess you were self-taught in composing then as well? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've, look, um, talk, talk about a blessing and a curse. Mm. Um, hmm. I think... With music, I've always had this passive relationship with music in as much that it's passive in that it's usually around me the whole time. Well, it's hard for anyone to escape it. Music Mm. is everywhere, whether Mm. in your shopping centre, walking down the street, um, car going past, um, the television, the podcast, YouTube, it's just every, it's everywhere. and it was much like that at home when I was growing up, listening to opera, classical, and jazz. And then 
So I drew in a lot of that stuff um, just because it was around me and it was, I have a, an antenna for that stuff. So I never felt the need and I never, I had a hatred of, I am a bit of an anti-establishment as you may have picked up. <laughs> No. And, a, uh, and a non-conformist, I've always been compelled to forge my own path. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to copy styles. I never wanted to copy trends. I don't buy labels. I never have. I think I've just perhaps a little obsessively been wanting to plough my own field my own way. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result, um, I, in some part to a detriment, I avoided an academic education because I hated school so much, and, and so I just wanted to go to my own. But I enjoy learning myself. These days, in particular, there are, there is there is so much, so many ways to self-educate. Um, I'm a complete um, autodidact through and through, you know, that's, that's who I am. And also I'll say this, I'm, I'm, I'm not down on educated education at all. I think for, for some people it's wonderful for me. It's just, it's claustrophobic. Mm. And I find myself, anytime I find myself being funneled down a path, I want to go in another one. It's just in my nature. Yeah. Um, and, but however, and I'm sure there are a lot of things I could have learned and I'm ignorant of as a result of not getting a formal education. I, re- I'm, I know that for sure. The flip side of that is I've worked with many musicians who have been highly educated and are much better musicians than I am. Um, however, there's something missing in some of them where the ability to improvise has been drilled out of them. Mm. When you go to the con and when you go through intensive training, they teach you one way to play. There's a correct way and there's the incorrect way. The correct way is to interpret the notes on the page. These are the, um, this is the way you learn and this is what you play and this is how you play your instrument. It's very precise. And that can be a, a very beneficial when you need that sort of discipline in a large orchestral um, environment. In fact, it's critical because you can't have you can't have um, eighty individuals all playing their individual style. <laughs> yeah. It has to conform in order to make this homogenous effect. Mm. And um, so, I completely understand all that. However. When I bring people into a session, some of them, and if I say to them, um, what, what, I, what I always tend to do is say, um, either at the start of the session or at the end of it, I'll say, do what you want to do. Now, now you've done what I want to do. Um, if you've got a better idea, you try it. Mm. And in about the majority of the classically trained um, musicians, regardless of how good that they are, find that if not difficult, impossible. Mm. Because the idea of improvisation is the antithesis of their training. Mm. 
And so when I see situations like that, I think, well, thank God I haven't been forced down the path. In fact, that reminds me, going back to when I was four years old, when my mother said to my brother and sister's piano teacher, um, I'd like to get you to, um, I'd like you to give Roger lessons. And I remember this woman, um, Mrs. Taylor, and she said, um, I'm not going to do that. Oh, she got me to play something. And, um, and she realized I was playing by ear, as they call it, mm. where you just improvise or you just play something you've heard and uh, you, you replicate it as best you can. And obviously it wasn't, um, you know, an amazing, like, piece from Mozart or Chopin or something, but it was enough to give her an idea of what I was doing. And she said, mm. uh, I'm not going to teach him. And, and mum was said she was a bit offended. And she said, well, I'm not going to teach him because there's something in him that I don't want to kill. Wow. And so she said, come back to me in two years time. Mm. So mum did. And so I had rudimentary piano lessons at the age of six. Mm. And then I went to the con to do my first two music exams for prep grade and grade one, which is my entire formal training in, mm. in music. But I remember the, um, I've still got it somewhere. The um, exam paper has a note on it from the examiners. I passed both of them, but there was a note saying, Roger shows an aptitude for uh, innovation and originality. However, um, if he wants to continue taking exams, it would be worthwhile if he played the places as written and didn't improvise them. <laughs> Which I thought was wonderful because they didn't fail me because, and what it was, basically, I realized now that I just did an approximation of the thing that I remembered the piano teacher playing. Wow. And so I, I just did it my own way. Yeah. And instead of the examiners failing me for it, they, like my, my piano teacher, said, yeah, we, we're, we don't entirely, um, um, you know, we're not entirely happy with the way that you reinterpreted um, <laughs> Beethoven. However, um, it's original. <laughs> and they liked the idea that they could see something else in there, which I thought was for that era was pretty remarkable yeah, that's when I right. think back to that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it could have been killed off. My mother and my piano teacher decided let's not overtrain him. Mm. And I ended up not being trained at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, uh, somehow I've managed to uh, sustain a career in, um, uh, in bands, you know, in bands you can get away with that stuff. Yeah. I realised when I started wanting to move into film composition, it was a slightly more um, cerebral um, and disciplined um, craft mm. and there are certain conventions that you have to uh, know about and you have to learn 
And in particular, when you start getting into orchestration and arranging and composition for film, it's a very different type. It's not songwriting anymore. You're writing to visual cues and you're, you're reading a script and you're trying to interpret that script or rather reinterpret the script mm. with music. And sometimes you need to be literal, but most of the time you need to support it. In other words, there's this term called Mickey Mousing, which is if you watch Disneyland, what you see on the screen is often depicted literally in the music mm-hmm. where Mickey falls down or something, you get a little boom, things like that. That's called Mickey Mousing. And so that's, all, that's frowned upon in serious music. That's cartoon writing, basically. Um, although if you listen to the scores in Bugs Bunny, which were hugely influential on my orchestral writing. Oh, I imagine so. They were incredibly artful. And a lot of them were derived and referenced a lot of um, existing orchestral music. In fact, in those days in Hollywood, that's how you got your, your jobs. Um, they would ask you, uh, they would basically, your, your internal reference library of music was the thing that you took with you um, in order to show how much of a composer you were, were you you were, mm. because Mickey Mousing and they would they would do a lot of things like um, for a pastoral scene they would use um, the pastoral symphony, so they wanted you to bring an appropriate uh, an appropriate um, piece of music that already existed in order to put into these productions because that's how scoring was. And then you would arrange it um, and that would be your job. And then you could do other bits of your own incidental music in between. But a lot of film scoring in those days was referencing existing classical works and rearranging them. Yeah. One of my favourite um, Bugs Bunny episodes is the um, the opera one where it's the kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it was so important in um, uh, scoring for children's television and for um, cartoons all the way through to now. In fact, I did a film that used that, idea of that energy and the scoring ideas and the the arrangement ideas in a film I did called Joey, which was an animated title sequence. And it could quite happily live in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Mm. It's all original music that I wrote, but it was inspired by my years of sitting down watching Bugs Bunny as a kid. So if you had to, um, if you asked me who would I feel closest to in regards to my efforts as a composer, what part of the process do I feel closest to in the filmmaking process? It's, it's easily the writer. Yeah, interesting. The writer is the literal um, derivative of what I do. Yeah. I will often respond to things that are in the script, in the dialogue, and, in the, and conceptualize your score and your t- the tone of it and what instruments you're going to use from the basis of the story. 
mm. uh, from what the story implies. Mm. And you work your way down from, from the genre, but then you start to um, try and work out different ways of, of, of doing this score, different colors, different instruments you can use, different techniques, different approaches. Mm. Um, and it's, there, there are also ways where you, you don't mirror the, the script, you reinterpret it. Sometimes you juxtapose it. It all depends on how the film is shot, the nuances in the acting and the directing, um, whether you should stay out of moments, whether you should underline moments that you feel are not very well um, interpreted on the screen, but um, they need a bit of underpinning in mm. order to remind the audience of something that happened earlier. Mm -hmm. This is where thematic writing is really important as these little subliminal messages that will reinforce something that happened earlier in the film and will keep the audience engaged uh, on an emotional level and an intellectual level to remind them of certain parts of the story. There are lots and lots of little things like that that are, you're, you're trying to achieve um, as a composer. Sometimes you'll be directed to by the producers and director, but a lot of the time you'll just use your own judgment mm. after so many years of reading scripts and watching TV, yeah. which was basically my university of um, learning how to write film scores was by watching film and television mm. for a couple of decades. Not a bad education at all. <laughs> yeah, I can think of worse. That's right. So does that mean when you're approaching a project, do you read the script first and then watch the edit or is it kind of dependent? Um, it's, it, it can happen any number of ways. Normally it depends on how organised the producers are, what, if there are any delays in how they encounter with the production um, I've, I've witnessed, uh, two scores just recently based on the synopsis, not entire scores, but I've written the main themes wow. and in both shows, it was the commons and hungry ghosts for SBS. Mm. Both of those events, um, which were incidentally done at the same time, I landed both jobs at the same time, which was terrifying. <laughs> But uh, I knew that I had to be incredibly organized in order to make it work. Um, in both occasions, I got the synopsis. Oh, no, I got the synopsis actually for um, the Commons. And they invited me to submit because no one ever offers you a job outright anymore. <laughs> Even with, I'd worked with this production company on four occasions and with the same producers. And I, they, they rang me up and I thought they were offering me a job, but no, you, know, you can submit. And then you go into a pool <laughs> and then everyone sits around and listens to the 10 composers demos. You know, it's like, no one else has to do this. Mm. The editors don't have to do a practice cut. The director doesn't have to go off and shoot a short film. Um, the, the actors, the actors have to audition, but that's about yeah, it. Yeah, they have to audition. Um, but um composers you're expected to not only write the theme but to produce up score 
and then um, sometimes you can spend a couple of weeks on it and then sometimes you'll never hear back from them. Mm. You'll just never hear back. And so you put a lot of effort into these things. But in this case, it came off and I got the job. Then they sent through a, a lengthy synopsis, I'll, I'll, I'll add, because it wasn't just like a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. But it was a lengthy synopsis, but it wasn't the script. And so um, I read that and I mulled over it for um, overnight. And then the next day I went in the studio and I knocked out um, four themes over the course of three or four days mm. and produced them. And um, I was pretty happy with them. I sent them in and they loved them. And so I, I got the job and those, those themes actually became, um, with a couple of editors, they actually cut to them. So they used them as the foundation for their timing in the cuts. Mm. And so, which was really lovely because that doesn't happen often. Mm. And sometimes um, I've written themes based on the script and then when you get the vision, it just, just, it's not the thing you imagined in your head it was going to be. Yeah. And sometimes I've had to just throw that out and start again. Yeah. And, um, but in this case, and it does happen on occasion that um, with Hungry Ghosts, I got the script and I based my themes on that. And I wrote about 10 themes for that. Oh, jeez. And... Uh, I wrote way too many, but it was really vivid and I felt like I knew the genre really well, even though I'd never done an Asian ghost story before. Mm. But it was really, um, it was something you could really get your teeth into an experiment. And it gave me a lot of opportunity to use a, the variety of strange and weird and exotic instruments I've collected over the years, <laughs> and, uh, which I did. And... So it made for a very um, dynamic score and a, these very moody, very introspective, um, emotional themes and some scary themes. And it was great fun. But I knew I had to nail both of them at the early stage mm. from a thematic point of view in order to be able to do both jobs at the same time. Mm. But it was a, it was a very difficult um, it was a very difficult year. And I guess, yeah, it, uh, that's something that can only be done from experience in the industry as well. Um, experience of knowing yourself and how you work as a person and knowing also how the industry works. So, Yeah, yeah. I look, you, there's, there are some things you just can't um, um, forecast, yeah. such as the whims of producers where they have a different idea than you do and then um you will try and um share your point of view as um as well you can but sometimes they just dig in some look sometimes from their point of view it's completely valid and um then you just have to compromise or you bend to their will ultimately it's this is the thing in this business as a songwriter and a, a producer of music, when you're working by yourself, you have no one to please but yourself. That's the point you start with 
in um, with scoring. And then by the time it's finished, quite often, it's this adulterated mess that you just think, that's not what I intended, but that's what I was kind of forced to do. Mm. And that's happened many times. Um, and it's out of your control because ultimately if the producer doesn't get you to rewrite uh, or the director, the network will be unhappy with something. And um, it may be completely wrong. Sometimes it's just a different point of view um, because everyone interprets music and art differently. And at the end of the day, they're the ones with the paycheck and you just have to what I learned earlier, I used to get really stroppy about this. And then I, I realized about 20 years ago that the real skill of a composer is being able to come up with options, lots of ideas, and you need to do them quickly. And you need to come up with a variety of things and you need to be able to throw away the thing that you started with, that you were beholden to, that you felt was the, the pinnacle of your creativity. You have to be prepared to cut it loose, let it, drift, let it drift away and sink to the bottom of the ocean and generate a new idea. Yeah. That's just as good, but different and more yeah. to what they want. Um, yeah. That's a big part of composition and collaborative working in general, you know, that's exactly right. I was just about to say, I really um, can relate to that as an actor. I feel like that is really like the the crux of what acting work is. You come in with your idea, but you also have to have multiple ideas that can work in different ways for what they may be wanting for something. And what they're saying that they want, you could turn up and do exactly that and they go, actually, I don't think we want that anymore. So it's all about adaptability within a collaborative sense, you know, and um, but I think it is important to first and foremost bring your your idea of what they're wanting to the table and not going, OK, what do I think they want? How am I going to like, you know, um, play to like what that what they've written and what I'm thinking in my head is exactly what they want because you, you're just going to waste time trying to work out what's in their brain when like they kind of most of the time don't even really know what they want and they want to see what's out there and what you as an individual bring to the table rather than everyone doing the exact same thing you know so that's right yeah and it's important to be true to yourself if you really want to be happy and successful at what you're doing you need to push yourself and the things that inspire you first. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And because that's how everyone is going to generate something that no one else has thought of before. Sometimes it will be accepted and sometimes it will be repelled purely because it's different and they haven't heard it before. Some people are receptive to hearing new things and that they haven't heard before. Uh, most people, even in uh, film, uh, particularly in, um, um, I think, in commercial television, are not accepting of that. They want to hear things they've heard before, or at least they've heard already in an ad, because often ads break more ground than commercial television in mm. Australia. Drama, I'm talking about. Um, so, but 
if um, if I'm mentoring anyone, I always try and tell them to, you've got to find your own path that differentiates you from other people. Yeah. And that's your, that's your, that's, that's your point reference. Yeah. You start with that. But if it's not accepted, um, uh, you, you don't die in a ditch over it. Mm. I used to. And then I learned that that's just stupid. Um, you can't take your ideas personally. That's right. Uh, as, a, as a personal attack, if they're rejected, um, you just have to come up with other ideas because that's the professional thing. If you want to be a pure artist, then that's an entirely different thing. You go away and you compose by yourself on things that no one will ever hear except for if they happen to log onto your channel on YouTube. Mm. But if you want to work in the industry, um, it's very important to be able to allow people to have their opinions and to basically direct you. You need to Mm. be, you have to be prepared to be directed. That's right. Well, I think that's a really nice note to end on. That's very inspiring. I enjoyed that. (laughs) Well, thank you, Roger, for being on the podcast with me today. I very much appreciate your time um, on this episode. Now, um, do you have any websites or anything to plug, um, any music or um, productions that are coming out that you'd like to let people know about before we go? Well, um, during COVID, um, there's been absolutely no work for me since last November. <laughs> it's the entire year, actually, mm. um, that I finished up on my last jobs. And then COVID, of course, happened in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when that um, restrictions came into power, um, into place on in March, and the borders closed and everything, I thought I'll start the one thing that I've only got one idea for, and that was to write a book. So I sat down and I wrote a book. And so I'm, I'm kind of playing with the idea of, of having that running parallel to my music career yeah. because I've got several ideas for, for other books. But at the same time, I hooked up with um, Steve Kilby from the church who started doing um, Steve's commercial songs on stage. So we played... Um, Max Watts at Moore Park on last Saturday night. And we have five or six dates coming up in February at this stage. And then the idea is that um, we're going to be playing more dates through next year and recording another album. And so next year we'll be releasing another Steve Kilby and the Winged Heels album. Then we'll be releasing the double album, I believe, of the ancient music stuff we recorded. And then there'll be a prog album uh, at some point after that. So I've kind of gone full circle. Yeah. I've kind of started out as an 18-year-old an um, band musician and now I've come back to it's where I'm kind of at again. That's right. It's really weird. Well, Roger, thank you so much for joining me and um, we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Rachel. Lovely talking to you.